Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on Satiate today. I'm Sue Van Rees, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. Food has so much power. Power to nourish, to strengthen, and to connect us to one another. That said, it's a true rarity to find a woman today who is at peace with her plate, with how she eats, how she looks, and how she feels in her body. Satiate is here to engage in meaningful conversation about what it really means to have food and body freedom, to show up in life as who you really are, to trust yourself tracking the intelligent design of your body, and to prosper with embodied self-care in doing so. Satiate offers you functional nutrition and food psychology insights, some of my favorite special guests and experts from all over the world, and some personal insights and anecdotes that can act as salve for your soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That way, you'll be sure to be alerted when new episodes are published and help me spread the word so that other women in need can find their way to this important conversation. Thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of Satiate. Arielle Schwartz, PhD, is a licensed clinical psychologist, EMDR therapy consultant, somatic psychotherapist, certified yoga instructor, and internationally sought out teacher. She is the author of six books, including her newest, Therapeutic Yoga for Trauma Recovery, and the Post-Traumatic Growth Guidebook. She is a leading voice in the treatment of PTSD and complex trauma, who specializes in applied polyvagal theory for trauma recovery. Her integrative mind-body approach to therapy includes relational therapy, part work therapy, somatic psychology, EMDR therapy, and therapeutic yoga for trauma. She believes trauma recovery is an awakening of the spiritual heart. You can find out more about Dr. Arielle Schwartz at drarielschwartz.com. Now for today's amazing conversation with Dr. Schwartz. Thank you so much for joining me, Arielle. It's such a pleasure to have you on Satiate today. And I've been so enjoying reading your new book and I can't wait to have this conversation. Thank you, Sue. It is a joy to be here with you. Grateful to have this opportunity. Yay. So I know that we have, I have so many questions for you and I am really excited to kind of dig into some of the practices and the ways in which you work and share your wisdom. But I thought for our listeners, um, it would be so great to just hear a little bit about your journey, how you found trauma therapy, yoga, and the combination of all of this along with polyvagal theory in your work and your robust writing and all of the different ways that you've 
brought your work to the world. Tell us a little bit about this, this journey for you. I'm glad to, you know, it's, it's actually, as you describe all of these different threads of the journey, it, it really is so much, it covers such a wide span of my own um, life experience and, and journey that it's hard to know exactly where to begin. But the, the first place that does come to mind um, is really where yoga um, became a very essential part of my own healing journey for myself. And um, having grown up with experiences of childhood trauma that manifested as profound anxiety for me in my um, late teens, early 20s, uh, some depression as well, that I had been introduced to yoga as a young child. It was something that, you know, I speak about this in, in the new book. I speak about the experience of growing up as a seven-year-old and having yoga as a kind of field of play and, and self-discovery then. But as many teenagers, I kind of lost interest and dropped it. And when I was in college, I was experiencing such profound anxiety that um, a friend of mine kind of dragged me to a yoga class. Um, and I went to this class and at the end of the class, I was like, oh, I feel better. I feel kind of like I came back home or I feel more relaxed. And so I just started going again and again and again. And the experience of what would happen for me in yoga emerged uh, out of that emerged this deep curiosity about why the body helps me feel better, right? Like why, why it was such an important part of my own healing journey. And I was also in psychotherapy and that was a very essential part of my healing process as well. But there was something very specific in the felt experience of myself after a yoga class that not too long after that, I was clear that I wanted to go do my own yoga teacher training. And I did that at the age of 23. Yeah, yeah, young. And I and at Kripalu, uh, which is in Massachusetts, and at the time that I entered Kripalu, they were going through a massive transition of the loss of a guru because of uh, transgressions sexually and financially and in that community. So the, the whole community was also in kind of a trauma vortex and a healing vortex and a redefining process. So it was a profound time to be involved in that community as well. And I, I remember being there and feeling like I couldn't settle into my body. Like even one of, of my very, very clear memories is lying on the floor of the room as we were receiving some kind of lecture and I was laying on my belly and my legs were outstretched behind me and my feet were just kind of kicking nonstop on the floor because I couldn't slow down. I couldn't settle. And there was someone sitting behind me and I'm sure my feet were driving them kind of crazy, right? Like, what is this girl <laughs> doing? And she just reached down and she placed her hands on my feet, right? And she and she wow. just softly rested them there and I burst into tears. Hmm. And that experience of slowing down and settling as much as it was very, you know, ultimately very relieving of my anxiety, it was also very scary because in that process, everything that I was running from or didn't want to feel was right there waiting for me. Wow. So that's the yoga part of this and, and mm -hmm. where yoga really came in and, and helped with the, um, my own healing journey around trauma and, and other symptoms that it was manifesting as. And 
and then I began to study somatic psychology in a larger sense. So I came here to Boulder, I attended Naropa and went to the master's program in somatic therapy or body-centered psychotherapy to, to understand kind of the science as to why this works and the practice of how do you actually guide other people into embodiment as a form of healing. And so, you know, kind of flash forward all of, I, I started Naropa and did my teacher training in 1996. And in 2008 or so, so, and you know, let's, let's go another 12 years forward. I was at a conference and Dr. Stephen Porges was mm. uh, one of the main speakers there. And I attended this like two day immersion with him at this conference. And I sat there and just took the most copious notes. I was like hungry. I soaked in this, this material about polyvagal theory. So he's the person that's, yeah. that's behind polyvagal theory. And to me, I had already been studying neuroscience. Um, I actually at that point was, had completed a doctoral program to try and understand this, the science of the mind and body and practice. And um, so I had already been studying the neuroscience, but when I arrived in the work of Dr. Stephen Porges, it was like everything landed. It all made sense to me. And understanding the nervous system and the kind of complex layers of not just the sympathetic nervous system, our kind of you know mobilization or fight flight system, stress response system, and our parasympathetic nervous system, which often kind of gets kind of thrown into this rest and relax and rest and digest response. But these nuanced understandings of stress isn't all bad. We actually need our sympathetic nervous systems, you know, for health and to climb a mountain or to play. And that our parasympathetic nervous system isn't all good, right? It's not all rest and digest. There's this other function that mm -hmm. comes in that actually shuts us down into yeah. an immobilization response that actually can wreak havoc on our health, you know, physical health and, and digestive system health and so forth. So it just, it just was like a, um, a, a mind opening moment where I knew that I had landed in my, my, you know, kind of professional zone. That was, that was the path I was going to move forward with. That's incredible all these little elements that, well, not really little, all these big elements that yeah. have influenced your own healing and your own study to then have them really come together in this beautiful way is, you know, that's really where the magic is in my experience anyways. And it's so incredible to read your work and your new book and see really how they kind of all can match up in this interweaving yeah. of, support for us humans as we mm -hmm. proceed through the world in these crazy times with so much trauma and so much stress and so much you know overload for many of us to the system mm -hmm. I know it's been really helpful for me to kind of revisit some of the practices you bring and the breath work and the ways in which we can really use our bodies as allies in our healing I would love and I've been doing my own study with polyvagal theory actually um, casually for the past year or so. And it's so fascinating, but also a little bit, I guess you would say like not totally mainstream information as far as the nervous system goes yet. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love to hear if you could define this 
polyvagal theory and the work of Dr. Stephen Porges clearly being kind of the pioneer within that um, within that system, just so we have a little bit of a deeper understanding before we move into some of these other topics. Love to, I, I'd love to. So the, the first thing that I'll say about polyvagal theory is that it came out of the study of a unexpe an unexpected paradox in um, studying the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is always associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. And if you think metaphorically about the sympathetic nervous system being like a gas pedal in a car, right? And it's gonna move us forward. It's, it's, it's mobilizing and energizing. And um, that the parasympathetic nervous system is like a metaphorical break and it's gonna slow us down. And so as, as they were studying the vagus nerve, they, the paradox was that sometimes this break took us into that rest and digest response. It was a kind of smooth, slow stopping. If you imagine you're driving that car and the light turns yellow and all the cars are kind of slowly proceeding to a nice gentle stop and no one's jerking around in the car, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the paradox was that in some cases that vagus nerve in the same in, in engaging the vagus nerve it leads to this hard fast shutdown so all of a sudden we're slamming on the brake and everything stops and okay. it can lead to a fainting a literal fainting response or what sometimes we refer to as a feigned death response um, in which the heart rate slows so so quickly that um, the blood actually is struggling to make its way to the brain. And so the fainting response is basically to restore a, a body from vertical to horizontal so that the blood can actually make its way to the brain and keep you alive. All right. So it has a, a biological purpose. Um, so to understand why the same nerve pathway could have these two different functions. One is this slow, refined break, and one is this hard, fast break. Um, Stephen Porges did this kind of deeper dive into understanding the polyvagal, so poly meaning multiple vagal, vagus nerve, multiple vagal circuits. And mm. the, the from an evolutionary standpoint, there's an older vagal circuit called the dorsal vagal circuit. And that dorsal vagal circuit runs down below the diaphragm into our digestive organs. Great, we need it there, right? Like it's mm -hmm. gonna, again, think rest and digest, like it's going to help help that, that, uh, that occur. There's also a newer evolutionarily, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, again, they're both, they're both very old, but a newer circuit that goes above the diaphragm primarily and into heart lungs, um, into the throat, the muscles around the face and the inner ear. And this is called the ventral vagal circuit anatomically. And it's also something that he refers to as our social engagement system. Yeah, yeah. So it allows us, if you think about that evolution from reptiles to mammals, right? If, if, again, we're kind mm -hmm. of going, going into the, the evolutionary functions of this. It allows us this social engagement or ventral vagal circuit it, it allows us to connect socially with others for the purpose of regulating our own uh, physiology. If you imagine, for example, um, 
you know, so your, your favorite pair of animals um, and the way that um, I'm going to go in my own mind with um, uh, with a gorilla, right? And the, the way that the gorilla is holding the baby gorilla and there's skin to skin and gazing and sound, uh, you know, sounding that all of that through the eye contact, through the, um, the, the sound of the voice and through the sounds that, that come into the ears are all of these social points of connection mm -hmm. that allow um, a communication of safety to occur through connection. And as mammals evolved, the amount of time that we that we spend being raised by um, the the parental caregivers has lengthened, right? So for us as humans, we spend time in the care of our caregivers, you know, eighteen years sometimes, right? Depending on how long you have that opportunity to be cared for, sometimes longer and sometimes not quite as long. Um, and we need that. We we need that for the kind of full development of our attachment systems and our relational capacity and our biological self-regulation that occurs because we've had these experiences, ideally, of social connection and safety that actually, I mean, this is right up your alley, Sue, it actually regulates our digestive system. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. So that's all so fascinating. And I've spoken to my friend who you probably know, Kimberly Johnson, who also studies this work. And she um, really introduced me to the concept um, of it, polyvagal theory, many years ago. I, and also, you know, having a similar background within our yoga history and some of the yoga philosophy, it's really interesting to me how your work has really been able to bring some of the ancient yogic traditions that were not based technically in polyvagal theory, which didn't have a name at the time, but yet there were these very consistent um, nuances within some of the practices that we do in, in the yoga tradition that are perfectly matched up in a sense. Like I remember reading that you were talking about the gaze, the drishti in yoga, and how that is so impactful into the nervous system in ways in which, you know, now we understand, but then we're considered just these ancient practices. Mm -hmm. And really what's so intriguing to me is how you've been able to bring together this modern day um, theory, I guess we could call it, and overlay it on this ancient practice that is so dynamic between the the eight limbs of yoga that, you know, we often overlook, but you really brought in many of those different aspects within your, within your um, work and your writing. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because it just really fascinates me that um, some of these concepts were embedded in this ancient tradition and we didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I'll go back a little bit between polyvagal theory and then kind of lend our way towards those those eight limbs of yoga but one of the things that really strikes me about the the parallel is that in polyvagal theory we recognize that we use that upper pathway that ventral vagal circuit or social engagement circuit to determine that we're safe and connected 
And so it's, you know, whether it's using your eyes and looking around the room or the sounds that you're hearing with your ears um, or the quality of, you know, kind of soft touch with your hands over your face or placing a hand over your heart, all of that is going to kind of let us know that it's okay to go inward. And if we think about the relationship between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, our sympathetic nervous system takes our attention out to the world and it's valuable. We need to be able to attune to the world to, uh, with our external senses, to know whether we're safe or not, to know what's happening out there. But too often in our kind of modern world, our attention gets stuck out and it gets kind of fixated on these, whether it's, you know, perceived experiences of threat or actual threat or the news or our social media feed or whatever it is, but we spend so much time with our attention out that we're very sympathetic dominant. And in truth, what we're, our aim is, is to kind of have enough of our out external awareness um, just to determine that we're safe. And then that allows us in right time and right place to go inward or in what in yoga we refer to as pratyahara, the ability mm -hmm. to attend to the internal experience and move inward with either a soft gaze or an eyes closed practice. And that's where we can, in the context of safety, really devote our own attention and awareness back into ourselves uh, for the purpose of healing and, and nourishing your own cellular awareness and being with your own internal emotional body and so forth. So this journey, as we take it through yoga, of this external focus towards more of that internal dive and feeling safe enough to take that internal dive. Um, it mirrors the, the functions of our nervous system and that polyvagal theory um, so beautifully as we have tools to soften and relax. Now, one last piece that I'll name around this is that sometimes moving in towards the body doesn't feel safe, perhaps because there's a history of trauma or you know, an accumulation of, of challenging life events that the body holds or bears the burden of, or as Bessel van der Kolk speaks about, kind of keeps the score, right? Yeah. So we, so as we move in towards the body, we have what we refer to as interoceptive memories or implicit memories of the past that are our felt sense of times when we weren't safe. Right. So as we go inward, and um, we might start to awaken to what the body is carrying as those kind of remnants of historical times when we weren't safe, um, or maybe current times, I mean, thinking of our current world. So we want to have tools to go inward safely. And I think that that intersection of polyvagal theory, um, which helps us to know the tools that, that increase the likelihood of safety in the here and now. And yoga, which has ample opportunities um, to you know, either upregulate or downregulate our nervous system as needed. Because sometimes the remnant in the body is that when we go in to relax, we kind of by, you know, we like we jump over, relax, and we go into collapse. 
Yeah. Right? Because I, I can't actually stay with the sensation. I just drop off into this felt sense or felt memory of helplessness or even despair that's carried by the body. So sometimes our breath practices actually can um, help us build tone to stay more upright, even as we go inward, so that we don't drop off that, that mm. you know, kind of cliff. Yeah. A question that I have kind of coming from what you just said is, you know, it's often in our yogic practices and even in a therapeutic model, for example, to like turn inward or go inward and be with the sensations of the body, be with the memories, be with the um, the heart center, all different aspects of the inner world. And what what my question is from where you kind of took us just now is, it sounds as if we could, in fact, go in too much too fast, mm -hmm. and that might trigger this collapse instead of relax response mm -hmm. because we get overloaded. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that's an accurate statement? Very much so. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a really key piece. And sometimes we can relax too quickly um, in a sense of we, we're letting go of our kind of muscular guarding too quickly. And what happens is that that the muscle muscular holding actually limits our sensory awareness or even our visceral awareness of what might be held more in the organs. So that tension pattern is an armor that protects us. And when we let go of that armor too quickly, whatever the kind of interoceptive or felt sense of self, um, whatever that's protecting us from is now at the forefront of our consciousness. And if we don't have the capacity to be with that vulnerability, um, I think that's when we either dissociate from it or, uh, or collapse away from it rather than stay present to what's there. And we have all of these beautiful tools um, for example, um, a tool within um, somatic uh, trauma treatment is something that we refer to as dual awareness. Mm -hmm. And it can be applied so magically into yoga in the sense of we can maintain enough external awareness, eyes open practice of external cues of safety. And then we oscillate our attention to those internal sensations or emotions or vulnerabilities or that, you know, kind of knot in the belly or that, that tension around the heart or that feeling in the throat, all of those places where we sense that. And we move towards it, but as soon as it feels like it might be getting too much or overwhelming, we can oscillate our attention back out to those external cues of safety. And so it's that, we can think of that pendulum that's swinging between the external resource and the internal distress, and we don't have to get stuck out of the body or in the body. That's amazing. So it's very much like titrating our experience mm -hmm. inward in a way that feels safe and maybe consistent without mm -hmm. it feeling like overly committed. That's what it right. sounds like to me. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so within your work and within this topic that we are exploring together here, would you say that yoga has the ability to do that without us knowing? Mm -hmm. Or would you say that that's an awareness that we need to bring to our yoga mat to then be a little bit more particular about how we practice? 
Um, I'm going to go with the latter of, the, of that. <laughs> I, really say that um, I think yoga has an intrinsic to it. A lot of um, a lot of the tools that will help us ultimately um, feel safer to move inward. However, there's plenty of styles of yoga out there in the world that don't necessarily emphasize this oscillating pro uh, process. And I I'm going to name it on both sides. We have a lot of, kind of modern yoga that's so outwardly focused mm -hmm. that we're actually not slowing down enough to maximize on this kind of nourishing, the nourishment of letting your awareness drop into that interoceptive feedback. Interoception mm -hmm. just means I'm perceiving my internal sensations, right? I'm yeah. using that word a lot, but it's worth slowing down around. Yeah. We also have forms of yoga that are so inwardly focused with that aren't trauma informed. So we might go into a restorative practice that, uh, that invites you to drop in so deeply. Um, but then we, then all of a sudden you're feeling all of this and there isn't enough support to know how to na navigate all that's been um, brought to the surface. So we can apply these tools of therapeutic yoga for trauma to both of those styles, whether you're doing an active vinyasa or a restorative yin practice, and actually find the sweet spot um, in either end of the, the kind of yoga practice range. Yeah. And, and I would say for me as a Kripalu um, trained yoga uh, yoga teacher, they, the Kripalu built this in very naturally, perhaps without knowing that what, it, you know, what, what this model was, but there's three stages of practice in the Kripalu yoga um, tradition. The first is what's called willful practice, which is an eyes open, um, very, very grounded physical practice. The second practice is where you go into more of a um, kind of a holding of a posture, a slowing it down, and these opportunities to drop your awareness to more of the internal experience. So you're beginning to move towards uh, more of a surrender. And then the third moves you more deeply. The third phase allows you to actually let your whole practice be guided by your internal sensations. And so a posture doesn't have to have a name. You're just allowing yourself to move intuitively based on whatever you're sensing and feeling inside. And it's that journey between will, willful practice and a surrender-based practice and that ability to move back and forth um, that is the really the foundation of Kripalu Yoga. They describe that the willfulness and the surrender function like two wings of a bird, that we need both to work in tandem in order for us to take flight. Mm, we love that. That's a beautiful metaphor, but also really well just like explained to us. And really what I'm getting here from what you're saying is that just like a lot of the things we move about in our life and we can customize how we eat, we can customize our, you know, daily routines, we can really customize our yoga practice yes. to match what it is that we are up for and working on and noticing in our, in our systems that that's something I wish that was more well known. I mean, as both of us being yoga teachers Surely we know the different types of yogic breathing, and I know we'll get into this a little bit more in our conversation. Some of them are more going to be more activating. Some are going to be more quiet and restorative, but I love that we can really use the actual asana and the breath and maybe 
the lighter darkness of the room, our eyes open, mm -hmm. eyes closed, or various nuances in our practice, when we understand a little bit more deeply what it is we need, which really is a huge passion for me, learning to ask ourselves what that actually is on a daily basis or even multiple times a day. Like, what do I need? How, do, how can I tend to myself more consciously? How can I understand my needs more thoroughly and really apply that information to whatever it is that we're doing throughout the day, but it's including our spiritual practices, our yoga practice, our time in nature, various things like that. So yeah, for, thank you for explaining it so beautifully. It really helps to understand these different aspects that are also paired with what you're talking with around polyvagal theory and feeling safe and feeling like that ventral side of the um, nervous, I guess it's the ventral, do we call it the ventral side of the nervous system? The ventral yeah. side of the nervous system. Yeah, so the ventral side of the nervous system that's giving us the cues that we're safe. Mm -hmm. What would happen if in, an, in a situation, for example, something is coming up for us in maybe from our past or maybe a stressor that's current in our day and we notice that we're not feeling safe mm -hmm. we notice that that level of uncertainty is maybe too heightened or that our inner body is going through a lot of sensations that are a mm -hmm. little overwhelming um, and we're noticing that feeling of unsafety even if it's true or not true in the actual physical realm what how can we bring ourselves back to that space or at least move in the direction of feeling safe in our bodies? Yeah, I'm so glad that you bring this question in and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of explain a core concept of polyvagal theory and then come back around to responding okay. to the how. Um, the core concept is something that Dr. Stephen Porges refers to as neuroception. And neuroception refers to the way that our nervous system um, is always assessing, it's, it's, it's got a job and that job is to assess whether you are safe, whether there is some kind of threat or danger out there or whether that threat is a life threat, right? Um, to the degree of, um, you know, like all, all hands on deck, all emergency bells are ringing. And neuroception is happening all of the time without conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of a, a process that's running in the background of our nervous system that's taking in cues from your external environment or your five senses, your external senses, taking in cues from your internal environment, what's happening in your body, and taking in cues from the people around you, your, you know, so um, the voice tone, the facial expressions, the, the body language of the, of the people surrounding us. Um, taking cues from your environment and so forth. So our nervous system has this job, which is basically to keep us safe and is going to be kind of tracking and sometimes vigilantly tracking and sometimes more passively tracking, but taking in this information. And our bodies are going to respond to these cues, even if we're not aware that we are perceiving these cues of threat. Right. So even if you don't know what you're responding to, sometimes we might perceive something, notice something, something flashes on the TV or something, you know, um, or 
a, a you know a, a feeling in your belly right like something happens and your nervous system is then responding to this and taking you into um, a threat response maybe your heart rate increases maybe you begin to sweat or to salivate or your muscles have tensed and all of this can happen under the lens of awareness but what we can do is we can turn up our conscious awareness or our perception of neuroception. And we do so primarily by paying attention to those interoceptive cues. Is my heart rate, what is, you know, what's the, you know, can I sense my heart rate right now? Can I sense how I'm breathing? Am I breathing quickly or slowly? Can I sense my body temperature? Can I sense how I'm digesting my food? Did all of a sudden I feel like, like everything just kind of locked up and I got really bloated or am I really able to just like soften and digest that meal that I just ate? Am I eating quickly or am I eating slowly, right? All of these, these feedbacks. So the more that we bring conscious awareness to our neuroceptive and interoceptive cues, the more that we can then be mindful to respond. And it also allows us to ask the key question, which is really what you spoke to, Sue, is the question is, is the nervous system response that I'm having accurate? Or am I getting a false alarm? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really key question. Yeah. Yeah. So in some cases, we have a false alarm where basically, if you imagine the house and the fire alarms are going off, but there's no fire. And in that case, we have certain tools, and I'll come back to the how, we have tools to then actually reorient your nervous system to cues of safety so that we can turn off the alarms and go, oh, there's no smoke, there's no fire, this was a false alarm, everything's okay, right? It was a drill, <laughs> okay, yeah. we're okay. And sometimes we have alarms going off, and indeed there's a threat, Mm -hmm. In which case, what we want to do is go, what do I need to change or do in order to respond to the accurate threat now that I'm aware of it? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm in a relationship where I don't feel safe. Maybe I'm, you know, working in an environment where my nervous system is getting bombarded by threats and I can't keep up with it and I need to adjust my life. Maybe I'm eating foods that I'm having a inflammation response to, and I need to change my diet, right? So we might actually like fine tune many layers of our lifestyle. The more that I'm attuning to, wow, I'm responding to something. What is that? There's actually something out there that, that is a pathogen or that is, um, you know, th th that I'm having an allergic reaction to, whether it's a person or a food. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. So the, then there's the third category, which is that there's a threat out there and I'm not responding to it. So now there's a smoke, there's, there's, there's fire, there's smoke and my alarms didn't go off. Hmm. And in that case, what we have is a form of faulty neuroception, which is basically that I've dialed down my awareness of threats so much that I'm not picking up on them when they're happening. Hence, 
someone who stays in an unhealthy relationship for years and years and years where abuse is happening, or um, addictions might be a great example, or eating foods and not sensing the way that my body responds to the food, whatever it might be. So the, so in all three cases, the more that I'm increasing my awareness of neuroceptive feedback via what am I sensing in my body and, and what are my external senses letting me know about why, the more that I dial that up and increase awareness, the more that I can answer this question, is it a real current threat? Am I having an accurate response to that real current threat? And what do I need to do to, to enhance my sense of safety? Yeah, great. Those are some really great questions to have kind of in our back pockets for, mm -hmm. for moving forward in life. But also, mm -hmm. you know, the way the world is right now, I was reading someone writing about desensitization to mm -hmm. some of the current events that are happening out there in the world that are fairly traumatizing and scary mm -hmm. and sad. And I would imagine that would be that similar response, the third one that you mentioned, where, you know, we're not actually feeling it because we've kind of numbed ourselves in a sense yeah. or desensitized ourselves. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I think that that often that third category of of numbing the the sensory awareness of a threat often is the result of growing up in an environment where there's so much ongoing threat that the only way to cope was basically to dissociate from that sensory input of uh, the fear-inducing stimuli. It's a very fancy language there, but basically yeah. I'm spinning out the threat because I have, I'm helpless to do anything about it. So my only way to cope is to actually dim down my sensory awareness of it. Yeah, okay. That really helps. That makes so much sense. And once again, it sort of highlights the fact that we've got all these different ways we can fine tune yeah. our ways of self-care based on what we're noticing within these responses. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the one more thing that I'll name about that kind of how, like, so if indeed we are safe, there is no current threat, but as I drop into my body, I start to feel remnants of historical threat what yoga can help us do is, is really learn some tools to soften those defensive layers. Um, you know, slowing down the breath, emphasizing a long, slow exhale as compared to the inhalation is one of the most simple ways of engaging more of a parasympathetic response. Definitely. Well, one of the things I love about your new book, and I'll just make sure to get the name right, uh, Therapeutic Yoga for Trauma Recovery, Applying the Principles of Polyvagal Theory for Self-Discovery, Embodied Healing, and Meaningful Change, is that you really do a wonderful job basically setting the stage for what we're talking about here and really giving the anatomy of the nervous system in a way that is so applied to yoga and trauma recovery. And also some of my favorite aspects are these very dynamic and very abundant practices that you offer within, within your book. And so I'd love to hear a couple of your favorites and how they apply to these different aspects of self that we've already kind of set the stage for in our conversation. Mm. The first that comes to mind with this question that you're, you're, posing is the practice that's based on pandicular motion or pandicular movement. 
So pendiculation, again, it's a fancy term, but basically what it means is you are allowing your sensations to guide your movement in a way that feels good. I mean, it's so simple. You mm -hmm. can imagine your favorite animal waking up from a nap because animals do pendiculation all the time. And it's that kind of like full body yawn, you know, it just, I can't, I can't talk about it and not do it. So, right. It's just that experience of contracting your body and stretching your body and reaching through the arms and, and following that urge to move into contraction and the move, the urge to move towards expansion. Um, and that that rhythm of contraction and expansion lives everywhere. It's in, yeah. you know, the, the smallest tiny cell to the biggest organisms that in, in all of life, right? It's the entire universe is expanding and contracting. Mm -hmm. And we see it in the flower that closes at night and that opens into the, you know, to the sunlight or the fern that unfurls. We see this in, um, the ocean waves, right? And so we're actually tapping in to the rhythm of nature that lives inside of you. Mm. It's in our breath, right? So mm -hmm. every inhalation allows us to expand and every exhalation allows us to contract. And so pendicular motion is basically tapping into that, those rhythms of nature as they live inside of you, following what we think of as like a spinal wave um, and allowing the, the breath and movement to be guided by sensation rather than an external prescription of move this way, right? Put your, put your arms out like this, um, bend your knee at this angle. You know, I, I loved what you said before, Sue, you said it's, you know, I've described the um, anatomy of the nervous system. And this book emphasizes that much more than the anatomy of the physical muscular um, structure yes. or skeletal structure. Yes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So within this pendiculation, did I say that right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what we're saying here as this practice, we are moving, giving ourselves the space to move with what feels good, regardless of, you know, whether that's some kind of you know, um, freestyle like five rhythms dance or whether it's the way, the speed at which we're walking or mm -hmm. whether it's the yoga poses that we're moving in and out of or even how we're pulsing in and out of those poses. Right. Um, maybe even the way that we're standing or yes. sitting. So with, for those of us, or for those listeners who maybe are newer to something like a yoga practice, how would one tap into that within like a yoga class, for example, mm -hmm. or, you know, a beginner yoga practice? Yeah. Well, you know, what, one thing that I'll name is that any yoga posture, you know, if you think about being in a table position with your hands under your shoulders and your knees under your hips, right. And, and that that posture now becomes the base for exploratory movement or a downward dog. So now you've lifted your knees off the floor. It becomes an opportunity for this exploratory movement. And sometimes it's helpful to have that structure of the down dog shape. And sometimes it's helpful to have that opportunity to then move freely within that shape or from yeah. that shape. 
And so, you know, that, that again goes back to those stages of Kripalu practice, where in a stage one willful practice, you're going to hold the shape. In a stage two, you're going to deepen in the shape. You're going to stay longer. In stage three, you're going to let the shape move you. So knowing for yourself, what am I needing in this moment? Am I needing some really grounded structure? Or am I needing this opportunity to follow that um, that internal journey and let it take me somewhere unexpected? Um, I think that the, you know, like, how do we find this? I think it's kind of to some degree getting comfortable with moving towards, um, towards that that internal guidance system, your 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 own internal kind of GPS of how your sensations are going to guide you um, in movement and in life. And you might also then seek out teachers that incorporate this style of teaching. Um, so you know if it's new to you and you don't have a teacher like that in your area, go to my YouTube channel and you'll find you know videos um, you know, galore of guided practices <laughs> in this style that are all free and available. So um, it's Amazing. a Dr. Ariel Schwartz on YouTube and you can find them there. And I, I think that, you know, the, the internal um, process of feeling comfortable with this free form movement is about developing your own comfort with moving towards the unknown right? Because we don't know what will unfold when we move in this manner. It's much more predictable if you go to a class and everything's kind of pre-prescribed, right? Like there's a sequence and it's the same sequence every class. But as we do this kind of deeper internal dive, every class is going to feel different and you don't quite know what's going to emerge. And is that okay? Yeah. In those places where you can access teachers or lineages that have the space for, you know, take a child's pose at any time or modify the postures as you need to, or giving you kind of permission or options to adjust accordingly. Those, those types of classes are those that I love the most because there is that space to customize and to be tuning into what we need in the moment. That's right. And I often say that, you know, in the classes that I teach, um, it, this, you know, especially pre-pandemic when we were all in person together, but that there will be times where everybody is doing something unique on their mat, that nobody looks the same. I mean, obviously no one ever looks the same, but you know what I mean? Like really yeah. we're, we're in very different shapes because there's the spaciousness of that free form movement. And yet there's still the safety and the structure of that postural base and the safety of your kind of rectangular um, yeah. mat or flying carpet, as I like to refer to it. You know, yeah. you're on, you're on your little magic carpet. Absolutely. And maybe even the safety of, you know, with good, good instruction, knowing alignment for the body that can keep us free from injury sure. as best as possible so that we can still apply that as maybe some of the structural side as well, but knowing that there's still that freedom of movement and space within it. That's one of my biggest passions within yoga teaching and practice is really understanding the alignment so that then we can take it and make it our own yeah, in a yeah. way that is safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. And, and I think going back to that kind of nervous system informed um, class that, that there are 
going to be times based on the state of your nervous system where you get on your mat and you're like, I really need an energizing class today. I need something that's going to really kind of, you know, I've been sitting at my computer for hours or whatever it might be, or, you know, and I just need to move and maybe I need to sweat and I need to get my heart rate up and that's going to feel great. And there's going to be other times where I'm going to need a really calming practice and restorative and slow and, um, and lots of long lingering, you know, um, in poses like child's pose or in, um, you know, restorative Shavasana and to know based on your nervous system, what's going to meet your need today. Yeah, definitely. On that same note, you know, I'd love to hear just a little bit on the trauma side of things for a moment, since that's a big specialty for you. Within the stages of healing trauma, you know, obviously there's a lot of uniqueness within each person, I'm sure. And at the same time, like many things, I'm sure there's some universals that we can touch on here today within healing from trauma. Um, would you be willing to share some of those stages with us and kind of how that can, what we can look for in our own healing? Yeah. So, you know, what, what I think is fascinating once again, is that we can find this parallel between the stages of the Kripalu yoga practice and the stages of trauma healing. Beautiful. Right. So in the first stage of uh, trauma therapy, pretty universally across all trauma therapies, and I'll um, kind of credit the the grandmother of trauma treatment, Judith Herman, with um, with her triphasic model. So the first phase of trauma therapy is to attend to safety and st stabilization. So we build our resources to help us feel safe, grounded, oriented to our surroundings, knowing where to seek out more stabilizing factors in our lives, um, who are our resources, who where is our, what, what are our go-to places and people. So that's the first stage. So if you're not sleeping, if you're not eating, if you're not hydrated, if you are homeless, if you're, right, like, I mean, you can add to the list, if you're, um, you know, in, in a very acute traumatic experience um, and you're feeling frightened on a day-to-day -day level, we need to create that stabilization. It's not the time to go in and do the deeper excavation or dive of, of uh, traumatic material. We want to attend to your nervous system. And same thing with our yoga practice. Like we're going to start with creating the safety and the structure first, and then we can go in and do those deeper dives. So we have practices within yoga that serve as those resources. I think of these as balancing practices. Mm. So in that way, we can do like a Samavriti breath, a balanced inhale and exhalation that allows you to slow the breath down to about four to six breaths a minute. And slowing the breath down, taking diaphragmatic or deep belly breathing, and um, and really being able to just sense the safety of your current surroundings, so long as indeed you have that opportunity, um, is going to help create some more balance in your nervous system. So that's phase one is safety stabilization. Mm -hmm. Phase two in trauma treatment is what we you know really look at now is that deepening, deepening into the processing of a traumatic event or. Uh, or many events or how they uh, have accumulated in your somatic experience. Um, 
attending to your nervous system and how that informs you about times that you've felt unsafe in the past. So that allows for that deeper dive. And then likewise in yoga, we have practices that are going to allow us to work with how the body has held that armoring that we spoke about earlier and yeah. to basically consciously start to de-armor. Um, there's some parallels that I have in the book to David Berselli's work in the tension and trauma release work of being able to um, kind of catch, for example, how the psoas muscles, how the hip flexors often guard us, have protected us sometimes for many, many years. And as I think many of us in the yoga community know that when we get into hip openers and yoga, um, a lot of emotions can start to come to the surface. They, you know, we tend to stuff a lot of that in our back pockets, I say. So our, yeah. our hips can be these kind of containers of, of intensity. And so we can use trauma as, uh, excuse me, we can use yoga as ways to attend to the impact of trauma in the body um, and specific postures that basically um, start to kind of shake loose that holding in the psoas and the hip flexor and allow us to, you know, if you've got a lot of gunk stuck on the bottom of your soup pot and you start to, you know, mm -hmm. stir it up, we're going to yes. get that moving again. And, um, and we want to obviously do that when we have enough of those resources in place so that yeah. if there's emotions that are coming up, uh, if you're feeling that vulnerability, if you feel some of that physical shaking, that you um, know that you're safe enough to allow that to occur. I'm, so I remember interesting. Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, I was just, I just want to share this really quick little antidote here because um, the last time I was in Bali, which was actually almost three years ago, I'm leaving next week mm -hmm. for my next retreat, but I haven't been back since the pandemic. And I was doing um, some yin practice in my room before I went to bed. Bali is a very healing place for me as well. Um, so I'm sure there's a little bit of that coming in um, into the story. And I had held this very long Bado Konasana hip flexor, hip opener, probably for like five or 10 minutes, you know, in my bed before I went to sleep. And um, I woke up in the middle of the night mm. sobbing, mm. like deep sobbing. I've never had that experience waking up to that level of sobbing mm. in my entire life. And the only thing I could trace it back to was this yin practice that I did right before I fell asleep. And it, you know, I felt safe. I felt like I was in a, um, a, a, a place with an uncertainty in my little room and in my place that I know well in Bali, um, I'm sure to be able to even go to this release, but it really just what you were saying about the hips and these um, opening practices poses that are so significant in the yogic sequencing, they really can bring stuff up to the surface, just like you're describing with the soup pot. And that experience for me was just so, um, so poignant within that exact conversation. So thank you for giving me the space to share that, but it just kind of really, really felt relevant in this, in this moment. 
Yes, it's so interesting because I was also going to share a personal um, story that that I will. Um, I'll share it here, and it's it very very much parallels what you're sharing. This occurred for me in the context of um, being in a fascia release workshop, and there's in fact there's a whole section in the book around fascia mm -hmm. yeah. and um, working with working with fascial release. Um, very much inspired by this experience. And we were doing a lot of rolling with balls, rolling out through the soles of your feet, rolling out through the calves with, with uh, you know, basically what I think of as like a racquetball, but a, uh, but basically a yoga ball and, and kind of um, gentle releasing in the fascia, rolling out through um, kind of under the clavicle, under the collarbones and, and, um, you know, kind of places where the fascia tends to gather um, and kind of, again, hold more of our emotional tension. I always think it's fascinating that those fascial points are very parallel to what you see in fibromyalgia with a flare-up and where those flare-ups happen in the body. Yeah, right. And so there's a lot of emotion that can accumulate there. And I don't know, maybe three hours into what was an extended fascia release workshop, I had a, a big emotional release. And thankfully, within the context of this group class and the safety and um, a kind of trauma-informed instructor, um, the several of the students and the instructor just wrapped me in blankets. And I laid there in this supported Shavasana with bolsters under my legs and tucked into blankets and just allowed myself to cry kind of like a little baby, right? And I didn't even know, and I think this parallels your story, Sue, I didn't even know what I was releasing. There wasn't a content, right? I didn't have a story or a narrative, mm -hmm. but an ability to just trust that the body and the emotional release had a wisdom and an intelligence that that then I could just allow and to be supported enough wrapped in these blankets like a little little infant swaddled you know and to be safe yeah it was this was in Estes Park you'll appreciate this part of the story upon the completion of of this when, when I you know kind of un, unfurled myself out of that cocoon of the blankets and I came outside and was standing and we'd had this rainstorm so there was this deluge of this thunderstorm as I was tucked in my cocoon and I came outside and there was a double rainbow oh, like one of those yeah. moments where I was just like oh yeah I think my wings came out <laughs> Absolutely. I love that when we can kind of have that, those affirmations from nature and things yeah. around us that are giving us almost like a blessing on our journey. Yeah. And that's amazing. That's the piece that we really want to trust is that, is that it isn't, we won't always be in that deep grief or in that that deep vulnerability, there is this emerging, and it's perfect. It segues right into the third phase of the trauma processing, right? Yes, because I was just going to come back to that. Phase, yeah, the third phase is integration. And it's really about ultimately taking the time to appreciate and assimilate any positive shift that occurs as a result of that deep dive of the trauma work. And it's an extremely important phase that I think sometimes gets kind of jumped over. Like we just feel like we always have to do the excavation. We always have to be in that, that deep dive. Mm -mm. Let yourself mm. really appreciate the double rainbow moment, right? Totally. Like of your own life, the moments where that expansion gets to happen, linger there, savor that. That's amazing, Arielle. Thank you for that reminder, because I do think, especially in certain communities and in certain 
spiritual traditions, it's emphasized to keep like digging and excavating and being doing the work and, you know, staying with it. And, and integration is, I think, just a lovely spaciousness to like, take it in and be with the present moment without feeling like there is that push all the time or that, you know, it's exhausting to be in the physical um, space of investigation all the time. You know, it's like we, we want to sit back and savor and rest and enjoy and integrate and be present with the current times as much as we want to go and do the deeper healing work. So I really appreciate you making that a strong point that integration can be so important for us mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so healing, so yeah. healing in itself. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things that brings to mind is that in the eight phases of, or the eight limbs of yoga, the eight phases, the eight limbs of yoga, we have um, built into the yoga practice that integration phase, right? We have this recognition that the, um, you know, kind of dharana and the samadhi that are the, the last two of our eight limbs are this built-in opportunity to experience meditation as the unfolding of all of the previous limbs of yoga. So we have our yamas and our niyamas, our, our, our first two limbs, which are really the kind of ethical guiding principles that help us set the structure and the stage for um, the practice. And then we have asana, which is the physical practice and, and pranayama, pranayama, our breath work. So we have those ways of really working with the physical body and preparing the physical body to move inward with pratyahara and, um, and to allow that focused concentration of dhyana to, um, to allow us to, um, to start to settle the attention and to settle the mind on a single point of awareness so that we can slow it all down. And then we very organically move into meditation, not as something I'm gonna sit down and meditate. Meditation is the result. It is the unfolding of the heart that allows us to open and savor and expand in a very natural sense. And then we can touch these moments of oneness. We can touch a moment of bliss. We can touch the double rainbow, right, of our own internal heart space. And that knowing that we are part of a universe that encompasses us and so much more, and that, that we have that inside of us as well. And it's, it's so important to know that, like, that is, that's where we're going that's why we do those deep dives absolutely the other thing that pops into my mind just on a more day-to-day -day kind of yoga spectrum is shavasana mm -hmm. giving us that space to integrate the practice and how quickly we can get take either cut the time down on that or not give ourselves leave before shavasana if we're in a rush but how really that space of integration or yoga nidra yogic sleep can be just so spacious for that integration process to happen so once again you know these ancient this ancient tradition that we're speaking of the yogic tradition so much wisdom within it i'm glad that we've been able to like 
see how current information and science and neuroscience and polyvagal theory and somatic psychology can also really support and also mimic some of the yogic principles that have been around for, you know, so, so long. So I really appreciate you bringing like these two aspects together for us today and just this incredible um, way that you've laid it out that makes so much sense. So thank you so much, Ariel, for that. It's, you know, this is the times in the world we're in have been the most unique and the most messy and strange and chaotic that I can ever remember in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think hearing this um, during these times is such an asset and such a gift for so many of us. And I really am so grateful for your wisdom today. And I'm grateful as well. I've been thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Yay. I have one final question that I always ask at the end of my podcast for you. As you know, my podcast is called Satiate. And Mm -hmm. I have the question, which is, what does being satiated mean to you? Mm. What a lovely question. And it feels so connected to that um, kind of... uh, Samadhi and that and that shavasana that we touched in at the end there of like really pausing, slowing down for me to to feel satiated is to feel fully nourished and satisfied. And I often come back at the end of my classes to these words enough, to the word enough. I am enough, I have enough, I've done enough. Right? Because we live in a world that gets fueled by never enough, never enough, never enough. So true. Right. So to just know that this was enough, we've covered enough, we've done enough and let yourself receive it now. Thank you for that. Mm. So beautiful. Well, I look forward to learning more from you and speaking more with you down the road. And I know that you have many, many different ways people can find you and learn about your work, read your books, check out your website. Will you just give us a little overview of what you have out there for the listeners to find yeah. you? Yeah, super happy. Um, so I have uh, my website is drarielschwartz.com. I have a blog on there that has many, many, many articles that you can peruse for as long as you'd like. I have seven, six books and an audio program that are out there. Um, I'm working on my seventh book, but six current books that are out there, um, all on trauma recovery and complex PTSD, and this latest one on therapeutic yoga for trauma recovery. And um, I'm on Facebook at Dr. Ariel Schwartz on Facebook, and you can find the YouTube channel if you're wanting guided practices. And you can always practice with me live on Zoom. Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing all of this good information and wisdom with us. And it's such an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor to spend time with you here on Satiate. And may this conversation be of benefit. From my heart to yours, I wish you health and happiness for the coming season, and may we meet again here very soon. Take good care.